Hi, I'm Naomi Castro, and this is the Castro Pod. This season, I have some great conversations with leaders at the very top of community colleges and nonprofits who are new to their role. Switching things up, following that path, transitioning. And all this while navigating health department guidance, bifurcated public opinion, and trying to keep everyone safe and sane. Wow, that's a double helping of mac and cheese with biscuits on the side. If you're in California, you have been hearing his name lately, Dr. Mike Munoz. He's the new president at Long Beach City College. You know, Long Beach, who was recently gifted $30 million by Mackenzie Scott. And he was named one of the Aspen Institute's Rising President Fellows. But even with these accolades, Mike is one of the most down-to-earth, kind-hearted men I have ever met. Okay, today is Monday, March 29th, and I am so excited to be on the Zoom with Dr. Mike Munoz, who is the brand spanking new uh, interim president at Long Beach City College. Hello, Mike. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Oh, I'm so happy you're here and congratulations. Thank you. This is how how many days now are we into your I'm about three weeks in at this point. So it's 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 um I'm and like I think some of the questions are to me, it's it's been a transition, so I can't wait to unpack that with you. Um yeah. but but yes, definitely, you know, I'm still in the transition stage, but it's but I feel like I have some chops to me after three weeks. Like I've been through a couple cycles and handled my first board meeting and that was that was um a great opportunity to kind of you know, transition from being a vice president and kind of serving in that supporting role to now being this um, interim superintendent president leading the board. It, it, it was a, it was a quite an honor and experience. That, that is so fantastic. And, you know, we have worked together in your vice president role and uh, you know, now you're interim president, president, superintendent. Um, and this is, you know, like, what prepared you? Like, were you, was, was a presidency kind of in the back of your mind, something you were interested in? You know, how did you kind of get ready for this? Sure. Give us the skinny. Awesome. So yes and, and no, <laughs> I'm of two hearts and minds on this topic. So was I necessarily expecting to step into an interim role um, as quickly as I did? No. But was I working towards preparing myself to be competitive to serve as a, as a college president? Yes. So in terms of preparation, I think there was a few things that just stand out to me. I think number one is um, I'm, a, I'm a very good listener. And I think that's a really important quality that sometimes I think gets understated, the importance of active listening and really more importantly, compassionate listening. And I think because I've really honed that ability over the last um, probably five to seven years, I've invested a lot in myself and kind of really engaging in practices of compassionate listening. It's really helped me in my vice president role to kind of really understand like, where's the campus at? What are folks hungry for in terms of leadership? And, um, and not just and all the different constituency groups, right? Not just our faculty, but our students, our classified um, professionals, our um, administrators, and also our board and external community, right? And so I think because I really, um, and, and like I said, it, it may not be the conventional leadership strategy that folks think of, but I, I think um, active listening has really suited me well um, because I feel like I have a really strong understanding of what the campus needs at this moment. And so I, it really helped prepare me to step into this role. 
And then also, you know, there's the more tangible things that I've done, right? Like I've participated in different leadership fellowship programs. So I was part of the um, ACA mentoring program, which is ACA is the Association of California Community College Colleges Administrators, right? I was also part of a, a fellows program with NCCHC, which is the National Community College Hispanic Council, which is kind of the Latino Diversity Affiliate Council of the American Association of Community Colleges. So I put myself out there for leadership opportunities. I also teach, you know, for the last 10 years, I've maintained my connection to the classroom. And it's been difficult as I've moved up in my career to maintain, you know, um, that footing in the classroom. But I always felt like it was really important for me to continue to teach. So I teach at USC. I teach um, counseling process course, which gets into active listening and reflection of feeling a lot of those counseling skills, right, as well as counseling theories. Um, and as well as a community college leadership course. So those are the courses I've primarily taught over the last five years. And that I call keeps the saw sharp for me because I think it's really sometimes as an administrator, you can fall into the transactional pieces of your job where you kind of um, go on like this kind of rote autopilot where it's it's you're doing your job, but it's more about the technical pieces of the job and not necessarily, you know, the higher level things of thinking that we we engage in as a, as executives, where you're really thinking about how am I going to be a thought leader for my campus? How am I going to lead on issues of racial equity? How am I going to lead on guided pathways and these different reforms? And so I feel like my connection to the classroom has kept my saw sharp. And then I think the last thing is that I've done to really prepare myself is um, engage in strong mentorship. So I seek out those that can help mentor me and guide me. I'm not a know-it-all. I don't assume to know it all. I think you have to approach these roles with a certain amount of cultural humility. Um, and so I don't pretend to know everything. And so I'm very transparent with that. And so I seek guidance when I need guidance and I'm open to that coaching. And I think that has helped me also prepare for this opportunity as well as other things that I can go into more detail on. But I, I think it's just starting at a high level. You know, I think one is just kind of my own desire to really engage in practices of compassionate listening, which leads to creating a culture of care on our campuses, which then I think facilitates the conditions for some of those transformational reforms to happen. Because I think sometimes when we think about transformational leadership, we think about the organizational and structural pieces of that, but not the mental models that we bring into the space and working with people because we're in the business of working with people, right? And so that's kind of um, the best way that I can describe what I've done to prepare myself. Well, that was fantastic. And I have to just second the um, description of you as a compassionate listener. And uh, I, I, I definitely like for folks who don't know you super well, like you sign your communications like love and light. Like that is just so like it's 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 um, you're like the Chicano hippie guy, but academic and really smart and wonderful. You know, like I love it. I'll take it. Good, I'll good, take good. all of that. All of that. <laughs> it's like the whole package. Um, <laughs> so, so for folks who would want to learn more about compassionate listening, um, where would you where would you direct them? So, um, I know this is going to sound kind of funny. YouTube. It's um, so I. Really, compassionate listening is oftentimes connected to mindfulness. And so I'm going to be very vulnerable with you and the audience right now. Um, in, the, I, in my earlier part of my administrative career, I had transitioned into a dean of counseling role. And I was really struggling 
in that initial role. I, I did fine in my director and um, associate dean roles, but when I moved into the dean role, I was struggling because I was having to all of a sudden manage a lot of conflict that I wasn't used to managing, and I was taking things really personal. And so it had an impact on my health and specifically my mental health. And so I had to really start to reflect and, and ask myself, I'm gonna stay in a leadership position. I knew I had to cope differently than the way I was coping because it was not, um, the way I was coping was unhealthy. I was personalizing a lot of things. I was bringing things home with me. And like I said, it was affecting my mental health and my physical health. And so um, I started reading different books. And one of the books I came across was The Four Agreements. And it talks a lot about, um, one of the agreements is not taking anything personally. And so I had to, I had to really um, learn, work very hard to master that. And so that kind of then led me on this path to mindfulness as a strategy for coping, right? And finding new ways of kind of dealing with the stress of, of leadership and management. And then, um, like I said, I read a few books and I came across this concept of compassionate listening, which is kind of a, a higher level, higher conscious form of active listening, which active listening you find in our counseling programs, right? I was teaching active listening in my program. But um, if you Google it, there's tons of great videos on um, compassionate listening, how to practice it, um, what it looks like, right? And so it's, it's more than just active listening, but it's really trying to deeply understand and, and really feel the emotions that the folks you're working with are feeling so that you can really understand um, from a better place, their perspective, whether you agree with it or not, it's to just really, it's a, it's a way to, to connect with individuals. And there's a lot of, I believe, therapeutic relief when people feel like they've really been heard even if you can't give them what they want. I think most of us wanna still be heard and, and have our perspectives validated. And so I started pulling from those techniques and I saw my relationships with, with folks transform when I started engaging in, in you know, these practices of compassionate listening. This stuff works. I mean, it really does, right? <laughs> it, it does. I mean, I think people, um, and that's why I feel like you know, when you read these different leadership books and it's oftentimes, you know, can get overcomplicated. I'm like, it's really not that complicated. It's, it's slow down, take the time to really listen and deeply understand where people are coming from, be just and fair as much as possible in your decision-making and know your why, right? Like really be rooted in your why and communicate that why. And like, for me, my why is students. And so I think, you know, when you're able to do those things, you'll be surprised how far folks will come along with you on that journey. Yeah. And that invitation, like that, that compassion, it invites them. It says like, you know, I'm on your team. We're, mm -hmm. you know, we're in this together. Oh, like my heart is so full right now. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. This is fantastic. Mine, mine, mine too. <laughs> good, 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 good. I, I definitely have struggled in the past in different roles with, uh, with managing conflict in particular. And, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting as a as a parent, I definitely am trying to uh, help my my child to kind of understand conflict, manage it, just everything you just said, not take it personally. Um, and uh, but in that journey with him, I've certainly learned a lot. I appreciate that. And I'm glad that you introduced, you know, that like, how it connects with parenting, because I'm on that journey. I have a daughter who's 23. And, we, you know, she's in a stage in her life where she's, you know, asserting herself and setting boundaries. And, and you know, I, at first I was, it was a, a little hard for me to hear some of the things, right? But then I realized, like, 
I have to step out of my, my dad role and kind of really just be present with her and try to understand where she's coming from. And sometimes, you know, it's easier said than done when it's our kids, right? But it, it, there's a lot of value in that. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 That is fantastic. And then I also wanted to bring up, I'm, I'm wondering if your role in Colegas mm-hmm. has helped at all with your, your, uh, your new presidency. Oh, tremendously. Like, first of all, I have to give such a big shout out to my, my compañeros and my colegas um, because they have been a rock for me. And also just a source of inspiration. You know, a lot of beautiful things come out of um, building community. And I think, you know, these roles can sometimes feel very isolating. And so when you're able to have a community of support, right, that folks that um, are like-minded that want to see um, structural and catalytic change, right, in our system, and they're doing it, right? They're not just talking the talk, but they're actually like doing the work. And, and, and so they've been an amazing asset for me. They've been my cheerleaders. They've been my thought leaders. They've been my co-conspirators. And I, I'm just really grateful to have them um, in my life because, you know, I think, um, you know, these roles sometimes that you're in, you know, there's things that you need to unpack, right? That you, that you don't necessarily feel like you can speak about completely freely in certain spaces. And so I think it's been really great to be able to pick up the phone and call, you know, Angelica, you know, um, Dr. Garcia at Berkeley City College and say, hey, you know, I'm going through this. Can you offer some insight? And, you know, and it's just, it's, it's just tremendous or Dr. Olivo or, or Michelle, you know, it's, just, it's been, it's been, they've been a, it's like a lifeline in a lot of ways for me um, professionally. I know one of the things that um, Dr. Garcia talks about uh, a lot is first generation professionals. I, I, I don't know your family history, but I certainly am first generation Latina professional. And it's, yeah, it's my, my mom can't really help me out. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's real talk. You know, I feel like, you know, um, can I also expand on what you just said? I think for Please. me, what I love most about the Colegas um, community is that it's so radically authentic. Like, I don't feel like people are going in there and being kind of like this fake version of themselves. Like, it's a really authentic space. And um, and that's refreshing, right? Because you want to be, to your point, like, to learn how to navigate some of these spaces, right, that we don't always have um, reference points for, to be able to have folks that are either just a little further ahead of you on that journey or going or walking that path alongside you simultaneously to be able to talk through some of that and say like, how do you navigate that? You know, and I know, so I'll give an example for me, um, you know, coming to Long Beach, Long Beach City College is such a vibrant, dynamic um, city with so much culture, history, tradition, um, this tremendous spirit of, uh, what's the right word, uh, of philanthropy, right? Just people give. And so I remember um, when I first arrived, I was a little uncomfortable going into different spaces with folks that, you know, whether it was raising money for students or, or whatnot. And and I, I could feel the imposter syndrome coming on, right? Because I was like, you know, my previous institution at Rio Hondo, the highlight of the year was the Tamalada, where we sold some tamales. And that was kind of like the big who's who event of the year. And, you know, coming into Long Beach, it's a completely different experience. And so I remember initially I, I felt really self-conscious. I actually ended up 
attending an event underdressed where it was clearly black tie and I didn't realize it was, and I felt really out of place. Um, and so I had to, you know, quickly like learn how to navigate that space. And, and don't get me wrong, like people were extremely welcoming and supportive of me. It wasn't anything that anyone was doing to me. It was just my own internal, you know, um, the, the, the last bit of imposter syndrome that I hadn't completely overcame, right? That was still kind of, and I don't know if you ever get rid of it completely. I think it just kind of like lurks in the background and every now and then it's like, ah, and it like pops up, right? <laughs> and then you gotta like, like whack-a-mole, you gotta hit it back down and be like, oh wait, <laughs> get out of here. But um, I'm not paying attention to you. I'm not feeding that. But I think, um, you know, I, I, I said for me, I, I struggled a little bit in the beginning because it just, it wasn't something that I was used to engaging in that kind of, in those spaces. And so it was nice to be able to talk to, Dr. Olivo, who's at Pasadena City College, that has that looks very similar in terms of communities with with a philanthropic arm and kind of these um, these wonderful community events. She was able to talk through through that with me and say, "Yeah, you know, I know what that's like." And, and you know, and 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 it was just it was like I said, it was this really authentic conversation, right? And so again, I'm not saying anything negative about my community. I love it. It's I think it's a, it has tremendous assets. But just being first gen, like you said. Um, and stepping into those spaces, it was a little intimidating for me at the beginning. But, you know, I, I think I overcame it by one, you know, really focusing and being self-aware, right, in my mind that why am I having these thoughts? Where are they coming from? Are they productive thoughts and feelings? And then recognizing that they're not productive, that, that they're, you know, it's important to acknowledge them so that you don't just brush them over. You, you, you sit with that for a moment, but you just don't get stuck with it, right? And I was able to move through some of those feelings of, of imposter syndrome through self-awareness and self-talk. Nice. Nice. And I, I wonder too, if we, if we could take that little imposter syndrome, right. And, and little or big and kind of flip it. Right. And, and maybe uh, there, you know, it might like, if we think of the root of where it comes from, it comes from mm-hmm. like, I don't know. I, I, mm-hmm. I don't know what the situation is I'm getting into. I don't know if I'm ready. And that, can be it can be awful when we tell ourselves like oh you're you're no good you shouldn't be here you're just you're you're pretending but if we take that same initial kind of like i don't know right mm-hmm. and we infuse that with positiveness then it can be like a humility yeah. and it, like you can be humble like i don't know what's going on and i'm bringing all my awesomeness to this i'm bringing all my knowledge and my resources to this so I can figure it out. And I know the person next to me probably doesn't know what's going on either. <laughs> right. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I love that. I love that as kind of a self-talk strategy. Right. And it's, it's about that, like that, that subtle reframing in our thinking yeah. is what I'm hearing. Right. It's, it's giving yourself a different reframe that hopefully can lead to a better outcome and better feelings about yourself. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. But there is something about confidence though. I don't, I have no idea how we get it over the years, but we do. And how do we help instill it in others? Like that confidence takes care of a lot. <laughs> yeah, it does. And you know, it's funny because it, you bring up a good point because I, I do a lot of student mentoring or, or should, when I say student mentoring, I'm think, talking more like graduate students who are emerging um, into our profession. And, you know, they'll oftentimes tell me like, Dr. Mike, you're so confident. How do you, how are you so confident? And I, and I tell them, you know, it's, it came through a lot of work. Like if you would have met me 20 years ago, I was, um, I was never shy. I was always very outgoing, but I, I had a lot of insecurities that I think I covered up with, with humor and, 
And because I was, I, I love to crack jokes and I was kind of like the class clown growing up. So I, that was kind of like my deflecting was using, was being funny and, and humorous. And so I had to kind of become self-aware, but again, it goes back to, um, I tell folks, if you don't journal, you should pick up a journal and start journaling um, or blogging, whichever, you know, because my daughter is more of a blogger than probably a journalist at this point. But, you know, I think journaling and, and taking time to self-reflect and then also reading Readings really helped me a lot. Like I said, reading the Four Agreements, um, reading, um, you know, the um, the Untethered Soul. It's just different books that have really helped me kind of work on my confidence in these spaces. You know, you have to feel, if you don't feel prepared, you're not going to feel confident. So you have to kind of like do that work internally so that you feel prepared to enter into these spaces, and that will help with your confidence. Nice. Thank you. I, I did want to ask a little bit about uh, some more operational kinds sure. of things, right? So you, you've, a year ago, so my first uh, season, this is all for season two. My first season was released <laughs> a little bit over a year ago, almost a year ago. And uh, we were just kind of transitioning into this shelter in place, remote mm-hmm. everything. And here we are a year later and we're transitioning out of it. Maybe we think we're not, you know, it's kind of like one step forward, two steps back kind of thing. So, um, you know, what's that been like for you? You're, you're new into this position. I'm sure your college is having discussions right now Mm -hmm. about eventual, you know, reopening. So how, how are you navigating all of that? It's a great question. And it's so timely because we're navigating it minute by minute. Right. Um, so it kind of lets us take stock where we're at right now. You know, for over a year, we were in the purple category for, you know, in terms of the public health orders. And about, don't quote me, but I'm going to say about two weeks ago, maybe two and a half weeks ago, we transitioned into red, which was a huge, you know, step for the first time in a year. And so by moving into red, it kind of provided a pathway for opening up different services on campus, like bringing our athletics back for conditioning, opening up libraries, opening up study spaces, computer labs letting faculty and staff return and work out of their offices if they so choose to. And so it really was kind of a game changer for us in a lot of ways. I mean, I think it happened much quicker than many of us anticipated. I mean, you think of where we were a couple months ago in terms of that kind of eye of the storm, right? And and that horrible human loss that we all experienced. I, I mean, I think during the eye of that, that, that um, spike, you know, I don't think anyone was untouched by loss. Um, and I'm getting emotional even talking about it because I'm kind of thinking back to all the loss that I experienced as well as my colleagues. So I think, you know, part of it was, I think, for us operationally is, is, is I, I like, I believe in structures and systems thinking, but I also think about the humanistic impact that these decisions make. So I'll start kind of there first and then tra- talk about structures and, and, and systems. So I think First and foremost, I realized, you know, it's really important that we need to be transparent. We need to be transparent with our faculty, staff, students, um, with as much information as possible. The process um, for decision-making on what returning to campus looks like should be collaborative as much as possible. I mean, keep in mind that much of this is dictated by public health orders, but, you know, we need to bring people along. We shouldn't withhold information. We need to have conversations with folks. And then the third, it needs to be compassionate. You know, that this, this, um, horrible pandemic has impacted people differently. We know that the impacts haven't been equal. You know, our our African-American, Black, and Latinx community has been severely impacted and traumatized by COVID. 
um, at a disproportionate rate, right? And we know as well as that different folks have experienced tremendous loss, as well as, you know, folks might be dealing with some, some post-COVID related um, symptoms, or just even maybe you didn't get COVID and you're just dealing with a lot of anxiety of what it means to go back to work after being at home for a year. And so I think we need to realize that there's a human impact to this. And although we are going to do what's in the best interest of students, you know, I don't try not to engage in these concepts of polarity thinking where it's like student-centered versus employee-centered. Like you can be both. You can be, it doesn't have to be or. You can be employee-centered and student-centered. And so I think that is something that are some guiding principles for me, right? And then moving into the structures and systems, we have a reopening task force that's comprised of our governance leaders, as well as some content experts around, you know, different um, safety protocols and whatnot to be able to really develop a plan, a tangible plan for folks so that we can start opening department by department. One of the things I think that's tricky is because, you know, we are doing some planning for fall and I, and, and philosophically, I told the work group, I said, or the task force, I said, you know, we philosophically need to make a decision. This is our first decision for it. Do we plan for what we know or do we plan for what we hope for? Because you're, you know, we're planning six months out for fall or maybe not quite six, let's say five months for fall. And, you know, we're trying to, if we plan for what we know right now, it's not most likely gonna be the outcome in fall. And if we plan for what we hope, there's, you run the risk of, you know, overshooting, or I don't want to use overshooting, but over planning or under planning, right? And so it's kind of like, where do we want to land? And so we, we decided to go for planning for where we hope to be. And so we gave folks some guidelines. Um, again, I engaged the governance leaders, had wonderful conversations with the Senate president, the union president, the curriculum chair, um, the, the classified Senate, the classified union leads, our adjunct faculty union leads, so that we really understand folks' perspective. Um, and then again, like trying to work through these very complicated um, problems to solve that are, you know, they're, they're day by day. But, you know, I think the key that we all have to remember is things are getting better. And that's what I want folks to take away is like, we're able to be at this stage because things are improving. And yeah, it's scary. And yeah, it's gonna, maybe for some of us, it's not gonna feel that good as we have these conversations because it's gonna be triggering, but we have to, we have to be able to you know, push through some of that and, and have the honest conversations about what we need to do to safely reopen our campuses. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did, I go too, did I go too far? Did no, I go too you long? didn't. That was actually, that was, that was fantastic. That was very, very, like, I. I, I, I so appreciate bringing along that, like, there's things that are kind of beyond our control, public health orders, and there's plenty that we can control. And that is how we interact with each other and how we include each other. So yeah, yeah that's fantastic. It's so hard. To, I mean, it's just so hard to navigate all this because, you know, the people it are is. scared and they're nervous and they... And they've been locked up for a year mm -hmm. or so, you know, like not I, I, again, I don't want to say locked up, but they've been, you know, yeah. under sheltering in place. Yeah. And it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. I, I recognize that. And I think what I try to do is um, again, be self-aware. Right. And so I noticed that I have had different anxious feelings um, when I've had to leave the house and do certain things. And so I think to myself, like, well, if I'm feeling this way, 
I can't be that on an island. I'm sure others are feeling this way and some might even be experiencing it more severe, right? And so we have to, we have to really understand that there's been a human toll um, and we can't be completely transactional about our approach to reopening our campuses. We have to, you know, we have to be balanced. Yeah, yeah. I also think that overall there's so many, I mean, it, it does get annoying when people talk about the silver linings, but we've done so many things out of necessity that we had only thought about before, or we kind of felt we're just too, too far reaching to be able to do. And then we just did it. <laughs> like, yep. And so I think, um, I, I think uh, in, in many ways, we're going to have services that are just going to be so much more available online. Mm -hmm. Students and instructors are just going to be so much more comfortable interacting mm -hmm. online and being able to have that kind of like just deepens your toolbox. Right. I agree completely. I think I don't think any of us want to frame like the, that this pandemic was good in any way, but there's plenty of lessons learned. Yeah. And I think what you're what you're describing to me are like, you know, these wonderful lessons that we've learned, like, yes, we can transform our organizations within weeks. <laughs> Because we did it. We can do it. You yeah, know, we, we just can, make a decision. You know, <laughs> yep. You know, we we can do it. We can do these things. And um, or just like you said, these enhancements to technology, right? And leveraging technology in a way where, you know, we were still doing wet signatures on things and it was slowing processes down. And and like now it's like, oh cool, I got four things in my inbox and I click and I my signatures doot 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 and it's done and it's off to the next person. And it's not being routed through inner office mail somewhere and sitting and you know, it's it's like, yes, we can we can um, you know, be more efficient in some ways. So Oh my gosh, you just reminded me. I just had this flashback. My aunt used to work for Mexicana Airlines. Oh, nice. and they had those, they had those tubes for inner office mail and like yes. the pneumatic shoots and things like that. And we would just send, like I, when I'd visit her at work, when I was little, we'd just send silly things to her buddies downstairs. That's and they'd send cute. silly things back up. Yeah. That was a million years ago. People are going to listen to this. They're going to have no idea what we're talking about. Uh, well, what, what you're describing reminds me of when I used to go with my grandma to the bank and she would do the drive up and it was the bank tellers. Like they would stick the check in the tube and it would suck it up. And so you didn't have to like go through inside the bank. It was like this, you know, and I used to always think that tube was like the coolest thing on the planet. It was like the Jetsons. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, this, this season is all about transitions. So mm -hmm. the first part of it, I'm, I'm speaking to folks like yourself who are new to uh, a leadership position, uh, uh, an executive leadership position. And, um, but I'm also going to be talking, I'm going to be reaching out to some of our colleagues who either have just retired or who have announced that they're they're about to retire, and so I'm wondering, um, what do you think I should ask them, or or what's something that they could talk about that you would find valuable? Well, a couple of things come to mind. So I think the first, what I would love, if I had um, some time, right? If I was listening to your podcast and I had some time with your, um, you know, recent retirees, I would kind of want to know, like, what would you tell your younger president self um, now with what you know? What would you, you know, if you were talking back to yourself at the, you know, the first three years of your presidency or your executive role, because we could be talking about vice presidents and other folks as well. What would you have told, um, what would you tell your younger self and what would you want them to know or, you know, he or she or they know? And I think that would be something I'd be curious because I feel like, you know, there's an always, you know, we think in the moment, this is what, 
we're experiencing and going through in that moment. And then with time and distance and, and, and different space, you can kind of look back and say, you know, it really wasn't that it was this. And so I kind of would love to hear their perspective on that. I also think um, what's really important right now is there's, you know, with all the transitions that are happening, I think, you know, more than 10% of the CEOs retired this past year. You know, I think it was like 16 CEOs retired. And, what, you know, so that's over 10% of our system. And I can only imagine what next year is going to be like and probably more. So I think with this much kind of transition happening um, in our system, I'd be curious to know, like, what are some of the things that um, you feel are really important from a historical or um, trend perspective that we need to be aware of that either is important that we either lose and we stop doing culturally or that, you know, we need to maintain this. Because I think with transition, sometimes um, we, we overhype the, the new leadership and the new vision and the new energy. And then sometimes we don't fully value some of the wisdom and some of the, the traditions um, of why we do things a certain way. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be open to new ways of thinking and, and behaving. But I think that, you know, it's all for me, it's always about balance. And so I, you know, and of course, I'm not going to promote balance on something that like structural racism. No, we shouldn't try to fight to preserve that. But, you know, there's other things I think that I would be interested in understanding. Like, so I'll give you a case in point. I, I have this wonderful relationship with Dr. Bernie Luskin, who um, is kind of an icon in the community college world. Right. And he's um, retired and he's been helping me with some you know, I, I would say it's probably some coaching, right? And he's been able to really share with me a lot of perspective on some of the historical backdrop on some of the ways, reasons why things look the way they look in our system. And just having that is powerful, that knowledge, because it also, whether, like I said, you want to reinforce that or dismantle that um, or somewhere in between, you have that context, right? And so I think, you know, the historical backdrop on these things um, and some of these items that sometimes get lost when we have this massive exodus of folks um, is important to know. Yeah, I'm reminded of an old, um, my, my dad lives out in the, in the middle of the country. And what does he say? He says like, don't take down a fence unless you know why it's there. Like, <laughs> like, it might be like a bull I might, on the other side. I might, or, I, I, might, I, might take a, I might steal your dad's quote. That's a pretty good quote. <laughs> I mean, I'm maybe the fence bar. should come down, you know, but yeah, you got to know what's on the other side. <laughs> like, Correct. What's, what's it supposed to be doing here? <laughs> cool, cool, cool. Thank you for that. So I want to move into a couple of rapid fire questions. Sure, let's do, do it. Do not think too much about these just top of, you know, whatever. Top of the head, okay. Favorite hot sauce. Um, Papatio. <laughs> um, what band or musician do you just never get tired of? Fleetwood Mac. Do you follow? Do you follow on social media that um, that uh, cool guy um, Apodaca? Yeah, with a cranberry. The cranberry. Yeah. Ocean spray. Yes. Oh, yes. Dog Face is his is his yes. Instagram name. Yeah, I do follow him. He's so cool. He is. Yeah, um, Fleetwood, Fleetwood Mac always puts me in a good mood. That's great. That's great. Um, what is the most underrated dessert? Tres leches. Cake. Tres yeah, leches. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm, okay. All right. And what is the best $100 you have ever spent? $100 or less? $100 or less? A massage. I get a once a month 
in-home massage from a in-home massage therapist and it really helps like relieve tension in my body because I carry tension in different parts of my body so that's what I spent you know and it's 100 bucks or 95 bucks for my massage and I love it it's, it's my go-to for relaxation and just kind of letting go of the stress that my body's been holding on to over the past month that sounds so good my my mother is actually a trained massage therapist Nice. But she lives in Arizona and I haven't seen her in over a year. So I'm like, I'm not getting the benefit. I'm not getting the family benefits out of this. <laughs> you need to, you need to figure out how to get to, over to Arizona. <laughs> this summer, this summer we're planning on it. Well, Mike, as we come to a close, my last question for you, is there anything that I should have asked you, but I didn't? Oh, that's an awesome question. Hmm. Anything, you know, first of all, I love your questions and I love the theme around transition. Um, and I really, the reason why I really appreciate it is it gave me the opportunity to pause and reflect. Um, I've been on hyperdrive for the last three weeks, right? So this was a nice pause of, and a point of self-reflection. I think um, maybe I'm a very, I'm a very aspirational person. So maybe like a, a question around like what, you know, you know, that's aspirational related, like whether it's like, what do I hope to achieve in this role for my campus and community? Or, you know, I always like to think a little forward. So maybe just throw out a, a question around, um, you know, that's aspirational and, and kind of in its meaning. Well, that well, then that's the question, right? So, so what are your aspirations for the next year, couple of years, next five years? I love it. So I'll, I'll be um, a little bit more short term. I'll do the next year. I think my aspiration for one is to be able to serve um, Long Beach City College with my entire heart and soul that um, can help us, you know, safely reopen the campus, um, but in a way where folks feel seen and validated and heard. Um, I want to continue to advance racial justice on our campus for students. We have a lot of work that we need to do around racial justice and closing some of our um, equity gaps that exist, especially for our um, Black and African-American students. And then also, I think the third thing that I really kind of just hope for myself is to just, you know, be in the moment and really just live every moment fully and enjoy this opportunity I've been given. Because I think sometimes we get so, um, like, just go so task-oriented that we kind of lose the ability to kind of just be like, wow, you know, you have so much privilege and potential impact that you can make with these roles, you know, really honor that and be in the moment. So those would probably be my three short term. Oh, that sounds great. That sounds so good. Okay. So I think I'm going to have to um, call you up again in a year and just check in on those. <laughs> I, I, I would love it. I would love to be a return guest. <laughs> that, sounds like a, that sounds like a plan to me. <laughs> awesome. Well, Mike, uh, Dr. Munoz, President Munoz, this has been such an honor. This has been so wonderful. And gosh, I wish our world were a little slower that we could just kind of do this more regularly and just kind of hang out. Oh, I love it. And just no, thank you for again, being a thought leader and creating space for folks like myself to come together and to be able to just, you know, have these very honest, real conversations with each other. Because I always tell folks, you know, when you allow your light to shine brightly, it gives others permission to do the same. And so, you know, I think what you've created with your podcast is, is that you're, you're bringing light to folks and you're sharing light with others. And so I love it and I'm, I'm all about it. So thank you. Compassionate listening, a culture of care. Yeah, Dr. Munoz is a counselor and he is all about that compassion and care. And when he signs his emails, love and light, he really means it. 
All the cool things that Mike mentioned will be linked in the show notes. This season is all about transitions, and you've been hearing from some leaders who are new to their roles, like Mike. But I want to talk to folks on the other end of this transition thing, too. Who is retired? Who's about to retire? If you have some suggestions, at me on Twitter, at Naomi Castro, P-R-O-F. One last thing. If you like season one and you want to hold it in your hands, well, you can. You can get the transcripts of season one in book format. The link is on the CastroPod webpage, and you can look it up on Amazon. It's a little easier to cite that way, and cranky professors will give it more weight than just citing the podcast. You know who you are. <laughs>